Welcome to the Cognitive Rampage. Oh, I'm I'm overly excited today. Probably been in flow for a straight week now. I don't even know. I can't even tell. Um, my guest today has been somebody I've wanted to speak with for, um, I don't know, a long time. And it happens on our one-year anniversary, actually. Um, that's why I love the universe. Uh, a year ago today, we started this podcast. Uh, July 22nd actually becomes the year, but uh, we record on this Monday, and we'll be releasing it this week. But I could give you probably the longest intro in the world for the guest that's on here, but it has been done numerous times. He's been interviewed too many times where people go down the most beautiful opening, well-crafted and constructed beautiful openings. And myself, I like to ask you know, the master himself, Stephen Kotler, welcome to the show. And what do you do? Um, mostly I write books and I uh, study human performance. And I also study disruptive technology. That's yeah. most of what I do. And I run a dog sanctuary. Yeah. And a million other things that you do. I, I always like asking the person sometimes because in their hearts, it's kind of what they really do. And I, I noticed the first thing you say is write books, which everyone in the world, I'm, I'm sorry, probably knows by now. And if you haven't, please look up all of Stephen Kotler's books, et cetera. There's, there's no one great one if you ask me, but um, it'd probably be a stage question to ask you that one. But is there any one of those books that just really change the direction for you in your life that just set a new paradigm in your whole world? You know, um, on a certain level, there's, there's no easy question. There's no easy answer to that question. Cause every time I write a book, I really, uh, there are guys, uh, who can write the same style, every book. And you look at stuff they wrote back in the nineties and look at stuff they wrote last year and it reads the same. And that's awesome. If you can, if you can do that, if you're that satisfied with, like, I'm never satisfied. So every time I write a book, I set a bigger writing challenge for the next one. I'll give you an example, bold, which I wrote with Peter. It's a business book. I'm not a business writer. Um, or, I, you know, I wrote a column for forms, but I'm not technically a business writer. And my experience with business writing is it's terrible. So when I set out to write bold, like there was a whole bunch of stuff we want to do in terms of the information we wanted to convey. But for me, the writing challenge is, can you write a business book that doesn't suck? You know, I mean, like, that was the goal. I mean, if, if you're looking for one, it was West of Jesus, because that was my transition from novels and fiction into nonfiction book writing. And that was the largest shift for me. Um, from what you did to there. Yeah, from what I, yeah, I mean, people, you know, people don't know this, um, but I was, you know, I came out of undergraduate, trained as a poet. Grad school was devoted to fiction writing. My first book's a novel. Um, and then there are two book, two more novels that sat in drawers because I got really sick while I was writing them um, each time and like couldn't finish them. And by the time I was done with that, I was like, fuck it. I'm done. I'm done with this stuff. I'm moving to fiction or nonfiction. Yeah, and made that change. That's a huge jump. You know, Steven, the other guy, he was a comic book writer. He has a, a graphic comic out that he loves, and he's thought about switching over too, but probably won't. But before I go too far, Steven, I, I want to, I'm kind of this epigenetic therapist edited by a Stoic philosopher guy who lived the life of a Scorsese, okay? Um, uh, yeah, it was a lot to put together. I, I follow you. No, it's good. <laughs> I think. Yeah, I I like to kind of know what built the man. You know, what what epigenetic, what'd you go through now? Everybody knows, uh, I think I've listened to almost every interview of yours, Stephen, and probably multiple times. So for me, I want to go back to the little Kotler. I want to go to Chicago, 67, 68, 75. I want to go through those early experiences, if that's all right. All right. So not all that many memories uh, and 
not exactly uh, certain this is going to add up, but uh, you know, I somebody asked me this question recently, like, how did you become a writer? And I said, well, I had this crazy advantage that my parents had me very young. They were very poor. They had no idea what the hell to do to raise a kid. So my mother figured reading is good. So she'd go to the library and come back with stacks of books and just read them to me over and over and over again. Apparently, by the way, I didn't speak for a really, really long time. They brought me to the doctor of doctors, you know, said, you know, don't worry about it. Sooner or later, he's going to start talking. He's never going to shut up, which turns out to be exactly the case. And like, you know, six months later, I, we were driving under a bridge and I pointed up and went viaduct. So clearly my mom's reading to me had some kind of impact because my first word was viaduct. Um, I, but, you know, if you're actually looking for the most formative thing, I've thought about this a lot. There's another thing that's done a lot of interviews. I was a professional magician. From the time I was 11 through uh, into college. Uh, and I did worked in restaurants and did birthday parties and bar mitzvahs and all that stuff. And I don't, magic was very influential on me uh, on a lot of different levels. But the thing that was the most amazing thing about magic is when I was 13 years old, I wanted to enter a contest, first magic contest. And uh, there was a guy named Darwin Ortez, who was one of the best magicians in the world. And he was what's known as a magician's magician. Meaning like if you know what magic is, it's actually like Michael Jordan dexterity, but on a miniature nanoscale, right? And this was the guy who was just great at it. I took one of his hardest tricks, so one of the hardest tricks by this giant in the field. And after, you know, eight months of performing in front of a mirror, I did it once. I actually couldn't do it again in competition. Actually failed. Like first time I shot down, total disaster. But I did it once. And the thing is, knowing that you can achieve absolute expert performance just, you know, at 13 with tiny hands and being uncoordinated, all those other things that I was just once, I think really reset what I thought was possible for myself. Because it never dawned on me that you couldn't be as good as the best in the world because I had already sort of done that you know clearly i wasn't as good as the best of the world but in my 12 13 year old brain i you know that didn't matter um but i think that was a huge kind of influential thing in my life is that i learned this really really hard thing that very very few people could do i only pulled it off once but it sort of it taught me i'll give you an example when i went into creative writing even journalism um these are very competitive fields and you go into a writing program and everybody wants to be the best writer in the workshop room, which, you know, whatever that means. Right. And it never dawned on me that I was important. I wanted to be Thomas Pynchon or Herman Melville, right? Like I think, and, and of course I can't be Thomas Pynchon or Herman Melville. So there's like an open category, right? There's the thousand best living writers or whatever. So it's a, there's no way to zero in because it's subjective. So that, you know, gave me a little more hope. But I mean, really like it never dawned on me that you should want to like compete against the people you were kind of working with your colleagues, I wanted to compete against the best in the world because I had learned back when I was 13 that I could actually compete in that realm. What a, I mean, that experience itself, right? I, I like to talk about that. Our beliefs stem from what we experience. We go through something, so we believe it to be true. I even argue there's no truth. But this small experience, this one prove it to yourself experience, I, I can see how that would just show you, yeah, I can be a nonfiction writer. Yeah, I can be a poet. Yeah, I can be a surfer. Yeah. I mean, for you, there's been not a question of, I'm not sure. It was just, yeah, I can. It's interesting. So I'm going to, uh, 
I'll tell you this story, and then I'm going to give you the add-on caveat. Actually, i got to back in. So I was at Singularity University the first time I was there, about six, seven years ago, and I was listening to Dan Barry, three-time space shuttle astronaut, survivor contestant, brilliant roboticist, great businessman, all-around amazing guy, um, give a lecture on what it took to become an astronaut. And his story is hysterical. He, NASA rejected him like 17 years in a row or, you know. And I'm listening to him talk and thinking to myself, you know, I have this story. Everybody, every successful person I know has this story, right? I, maybe there are people who get lucky, but I don't think most of the people I know who sort of get lucky can't persist long enough. They haven't learned enough of the grit skills along the way. But, you know, so if you want that version of the story, the very first time I tried to write a short story in school, the teachers yanked me out of the classroom and screamed at me because I was writing wrong. They tried to fail me my senior year in high school because my poetry was offensive. They threw me out of my undergraduate writing program at the University of Wisconsin. I only was going to go to grad school at Johns Hopkins because John Barth was there at the time, and nobody up to that point had any idea what the hell I was doing with language. I didn't know what I was doing with language, but Barth had founded Metafiction. I figured he might be the only guy in the universe who could actually judge my writing, and I, it took me three years to get into Hopkins, um, during which time I lived in a room the size of a Volkswagen microbus that was between the psych wall of an art gallery and like the street on what they used to call Devil's Corner in San Francisco because so many people got shot there. But like, I would crawl over my bed to get to my desk and all I was doing was working on my first novel and learning to windsurf and, you know, bartending. Yeah, I finally got into Hopkins and the, no, turn in my first writing sample. I want to go first because I got to know, right? Like, and we turn it in and everybody in the class hates it. I mean, hates it. Like every single person in the class hates it. Like they're, they're screaming mad that I've made them read such trash and wasted so much of their time. And Barth came to my defense. He actually loved it. And it became my first novel and which he ended up blurbing, but he was the first person. I was already 23. He was the very first person who said, yeah, I think you should do this. Um, Everybody else said no. And there's, of course, this story goes on and on and on, like everybody's story goes on and on and on. And I think the only thing you can learn from that story is, you know, the difference between success and failure, as far as I can tell, is you just keep getting up. You just, right, you just keep going. And the other thing that I think is interesting that I also learned along the way is I don't think there's that much of a difference between a huge, ridiculous goal and a really simple goal. If I sit down with friends of mine who own a dry cleaning business and we talk about what their week is like to run their dry cleaning business, or I sit down with Peter Diamandis and talk about, well, what does it mean to run a human longevity institute and an asteroid mining company? The workload, the stress level, it's the same. The only thing that's different is the vision. Everybody's working just as hard. It's just how far you can see into the future that seems to be the major differentiator and kind of a ferocity about bringing that into existence. Yeah, I'm, I'm going back to the magician time and, <laughs> and how you pushed through, right? It was eight months of practicing this one trick and, you know, and trying to master that. So, I mean, even through that experience, it showed you that persistence against the best in the world at the moment is really what kind of defines your ability or your chance to go further. And it's almost like you need to fail, right? We hear it a lot, right? Fail to go forward, keep failing. We learn uh, so much from that. But is there a difference really between 
when you make it that one time, that one trick, you pull it off and it makes it that rush, that that moment you feel and those eight months of failing at the trick in the mirror over and over. You know, the interesting thing is the brain doesn't tend to remember extreme pain all that well, right? It remembers the victory, thank God. But the extreme, all the grind along the way, it doesn't tend to record, which is useful if you want to continue this stuff over and over. But, you know, that flash of aha insight where something comes together for the first time, first of all, that often is enough to just snap you into flow, right? It's usually sort of the telltale signature of flow. So I think very early on when that trick started coming together, probably through magic and other ways, A, it taught me to focus, right? Like I would sit and stare at my hands for four hours straight at 11 years of age, which, you know, that's a lot of pinpoint laser focus. That's a, that's a great thing to learn for flow hacking. When it all comes together, it's a huge high, right? They talk about, you know, in regular athletics, and I think this gets at sort of what you're getting at, flow states in baseball or track and field, those kinds of sports tend to be relatively rare. They tend to define an athlete's career, but you only need a handful of them to be driven forward, right? You get this vision of, oh my God, this is, might be capable for me and I'm going to keep going at it because nothing is more exciting than possibility, right? Self-possibility. Right. That, that Well, that notice the possibility. I'm going to go off left field if I say the word because I want to come back to passion later. But I mean, man, you talk too much. You put me in a flow state, Steve, and I'm going to start rhyming on accident. I'm not even going to mean to. I, uh, I've been rhyming since I was a kid, just doing freestyle poetry and spoken word. And oh, man, trust me, you get made fun of it when you're just doing that randomly trying to learn. And I tell people, look, you can learn how to do that, right? You can learn to go into flow state and just start rhyming off the top of your head. And uh, that was my squirrel moment there. So, so going back, <laughs> yeah, squirrel. So going back as the, uh, what was your vision? You talk about the vision being big, right? And having whatever that goal is. That vision for you was huge to, to master the, the best locally there at this trick and master that. After the magician vision, can you remember the big dream or the big vision from there? It was, you know, it was always I want to write and I want to have adventures. I mean, that was, that was always the vision, right? The question really was, how do you make a living? How do you get paid? How do you, all that stuff was the question. Um, I knew for as long as I, you know, writing and have adventure. And for me, it turns out having adventures started out really, really broad, right? It was everything. I want to go hobo across America. I want to go sail through monsoons with pirates. I want to go, you know, cliff dive and blah, blah. It's been reduced over time to like, you know, given my choice, I'm going surfing, downhill mountain biking, skiing, or to hang out with animals in some, you know, interesting location, and preferably with scientists who are hanging out with the animals so I can figure out what's going on. Right? Those are the things I mainly want to do. I, you know, they talk in human performance um, about there's big goals are really important just from a performance perspective, forget flow, forget everything else. Setting big goals, we know, and there's studies going back to the 60s that show this boost performance by 25%. So to me, it's a question of, you know, there are, I have, you know, there are three things I want to do. I want to, you know, continue to do great things in my writing if I can. I want to try to make the world a better place for animals. And I want to help advance flow science. Um, 
those are, you know, those are my three lofty goals. And that's 90% of what I do all day. Right. Yeah. I'm, whew, yeah. I just, sometimes I feel like connected to people and they're talking and I can see them walking through that idea to adventure. You know, my mom would tell you that I've wanted to be an entertainer since I was a kid. And when I work with clients sometimes in career mode, right, I, I love to ask them, what did you want to do before you knew you had to do something? And usually I get the response, you know, a job title. And I'm like, nope, you knew you had to do something further beyond that. And well, I'd like to eat. My mom would tell me I like to just entertain the whole crowd. You know, and when we can dig from those authentic things that we love to do, that trick is really trying to fit it into our social constructs, right? Of how we make money, how we pay bills. And that can be a difficult life over time for, for a lot of people, myself included, chasing those adventures, chasing those pirate dreams, if you will, to try to live and, and stay in that. And uh, I heard you mention on an interview that you bartended for a long time. And myself was in the scene before I switched over, became a mental health counselor, et cetera. I, I ran nightclubs, owned a few. And whew, that, that flow state, I was coming out of a way different lifestyle. <coughs> we'll just call it the street life. And I needed that rush still, right? And that was the only thing that provided that. And my friend Christian, who is excellent at doing this, he, he used to talk to me about that scene. He said, Adam, the reason you talk like you do, you got to meet all of this range of people. And one, how did you just start walking into bartending and not go right into college and and, you know, being, a oh, no. right? I, I bartended through college and grad school. Okay. I did. That was, that was how I, you know, paid the bills and, you know, kept going in San Francisco, uh, which was, you know, it was an awesome thing. Uh, there was no sleep involved. Right. Cause I would, you know, I bartend till 2am to close the bars to get home at three, maybe be asleep by four if you're, you know, lucky. And my phone would start to ring because all my editors were in New York and we were all young and hungry and they were getting into work at 8.30 and calling me on the West Coast. And my phone was starting at 5.30 in the morning and they'd want something and I was poor and hungry and I said, yes, you know what I mean? So there were, there was about seven, eight years where I don't, I didn't sleep very much, um, you know, learning to bar, bartending and writing, you know, working as a journalist and writing my first novel because I had to sandwich all three and, um, but I think, uh, I totally agree with you. I bartending gave me the ability to talk to anybody. Um, and you know, gave me a lot of it just comp massive amounts of confidence, um, in pretty much any situation over, over the years. You know, and I got, I was really lucky. I worked in this really strange bar in San Francisco called Cafe Babar. And it was owned by this old Latin teacher from Detroit who was like a jazz hipster. And it was the kind of place where like it was, a, it was kind of a rundown bar, but like Dizzy Gillespie would show up and play a set in Berkeley for thousands of people. And then he'd come and like do a solo set at two o'clock in the morning for like, you know, a handful of people in this room. It was a really strange room. Most of the people, not including me, a lot of people worked there at PhDs. And so it was this really eclectic, you know, mix of people. We had like Jeopardy winners or among the re regulars, Paul Malvridis, who created the Furry Freak Brothers. If you know anything about kind of graphic novel, comic book lore, was, was there, it was just this amazing eclectic mix of really smart weirdos, um, which was San Francisco was great for, but it really, I think, helped me you know, as a journalist, because especially if, you know, what I did, a lot of my career was focused on people at the pinnacle of performance, be it human performance or scientists and technologists who were inventing Tomorrowland, you know, all that sort of stuff. They're all weird. Um, you know, I'm weird as well. So, you know, there's peas in the pod, but, you know, it really, I, bartending helped me walk right into that world. I was never uncomfortable having to, being a journalist. 
because bartending was the best training ever. Man, I can see it. I, I mean, if you spend just a year in that environment and you're spending seven years talking to the people that are actually even coming to that bar, I can see the whole environmental influence almost. How many years you spent just in that one little bar? Well, I was in a lot of different bars, but I think I was, I, I think I was until they closed it. So I, I want to say five, four or five, um, you know, it was sort of like cheers for freaks and geeks. <laughs> that sounds like another good bar to open. Um, it was, it was, it was a, it was a good spot. And I did get, you know, I was also considered one of the most belligerent bartenders in San Francisco. I was, uh, I was not fun. <laughs> Let me just openly admit that. I, well, uh, if anyone's ever tuned in this podcast, um, that's been the issue with most of my listeners that I lose is I just say fucking too much. <laughs> and it's just, it's so, you can use it in so many places, man. I, I, I hate holding that back. So I don't know. It brings personality, right? To the bar, whatever you're doing, it had purpose to it, huh? Something like that. However we rationalize it. We try to. Uh, we spit enough rationalizing. Now, you talked about confidence. And another word like passion or purpose, right, that gets manipulated and moved around to certain points. And from your standpoint, that confidence that you felt, how, I mean, how does that build the confidence, meeting people, being on stage? Like, how does that, and what is confidence to you, honestly? Wow, that's a really interesting question that nobody's ever asked me, and I have no idea if I'm going to be able to answer it. Me, me, um, we'll play around with it. I'm trying to figure it out myself. So, and the reason, let me, let, let's back into it. The reason I think it's hard to answer is I think confidence is very situational. For example, I've been on stage since I was 11 years old, right? I did magic, then I did some, a little bit of theater. And by the, you know, as soon as I sort of became a journalist or, I mean, a, a novel, a book writer, I was giving talks and then I was giving speeches and right. So I have no problem getting up in front of 50,000 people and, you know, giving a talk doesn't bother me at all. Um, that's not confidence. That's just practice and massive amount. I mean, to me, confidence is familiarity plus courage, I think. That's, I think that now, now that I'm talking about it out loud, I'll, I'll give you familiarity with less courage. And let me give you, let me tell you what I mean by familiarity. I am afraid of heights, natural, like huge height phobia. I was a rock climber for a decade, never, ever got past it. I love the idea of being terrified of something going straight at it. That's really fun for me, um, ish. Uh, and rock climbing, I could never break through, but I do a lot of steep skiing where there's a lot of exposed cliffs, a lot of like you're, you're exposed fairly frequently. So what I have to do to train during ski season is I have to walk my dogs on ridgelines. I have to just twice a week, three times a week, I have to put myself up there and expose myself to it, which is the only way I can stave. I'm not comfortable, right? I'm not, but I can stave off the fight or flight response and I can, the, then, you know, that's what I mean by familiarity and the courage at that point is in those situations, you have to know that you have to know, be able to trust your skill level. I think one of the hardest things for people everywhere to do is we don't trust our own histories often really don't. Most people like can't look back over their life and go, well, what have I been really excellent at little things, tiny little things, right? You were talking earlier about fashion passion. And I think one of the ways to build towards that is to survey your life and go, 
What tiny little things have I been excellent at? And I don't mean like I'm an excellent skier. I mean like what little tiny bit of skiing are you really good at? Maybe you're really good at tight, steep tree skiing. Like get really narrow with it and figure out what those things are. Start looking where they overlap. There's, you know, that's an interesting place to look for passion. I found. I don't know if I can define confidence. I've I've been talking at it now for five minutes. I don't think I'm getting us any closer. <laughs> I no, I think we're finding somewhere. I in my, in my book I do a uh, I talk about a a principle called CCE, which is competence to confidence equals enthusiasm. And what I talk about is not trying to find happiness, but trying to find that state of enthusiasm. And that's only found when you've had confidence when you've built it up right through familiarity, like experience. And even an inventory that I, I put together, right? It's like this interest to enthusiasm is there's 10 different components, right? So you write down something you're interested in. Then you go experience it. So you get some competence in it with enough familiarity. Just like you said, it builds a confidence that we can do that thing and achieve a state of enthusiasm or, or happiness or whatever the heck we want to spin it to call it, right? And so for me, confidence, I think we agree with you, is that we get confident and at least through our experiences, we, we've done enough things or maybe we failed at enough things and, uh, and even won at enough things to where we kind of know. I'll give, you, I'll give you a total other example. I am really bad at foreign languages. Like was asked to leave my Spanish class in high school because I was so bad. The same basic thing happened with my German requirement in college. I got into graduate school at Hopkins and they have a foreign language requirement. You have to be fluent in a foreign language to get a graduate degree from there. Um, so I went, all right, I'm screwed. I'm going to die here, but I'm going to Hopkins. It took me three years to get like, I'm not giving up. And I spent three months, four months alone uh, with flashcards teaching myself Spanish and then, you know, kind of took it into the neighborhood and the mission and, and spoke with all the grandmothers and whatever, and would start ordering burritos in Spanish. And six months later passed a fluency exam without a problem, like 96 percentile, no big issue. I learned two things. One, I don't really, Spanish class was always hard because I don't like being really bad at things in public. So there was too much anxiety, too much neuroticism. I couldn't learn Spanish that way. And on my own, doing this way was much better. And I also, you know, the grandmothers are great if you ever want to learn a foreign language because they just laugh at you when you screw up their language. And it's great. Like it's hysterical. There's not, it's not like class where everybody's staring at you. They just start laughing at you. So you, your ego gets checked at the door immediately. There's no, there's no other way to compete. Um, but I will tell you like that, here was a thing that I could not learn, could not learn, could not learn, could not learn, could not learn. And suddenly I was motivated to learn it. And, you know, three, four months later, I was fluent in Spanish. Just turning that switch on. I mean, there's I kind of I love to talk about the You know, we don't really know where that passion it can be hidden until you go experience. Right. You have that moment. You know, uh, I was I've been actually gone all weekend, three days kayaking between kayaking and surfing, just disappearing for a while. And uh, actually, it was last weekend. There was a friend of mine's young, young kid, um, you know, 20 something just out of the service and uh, had never surfed. And he wanted to surf for the first time. And he hopped up and got his first, you know, little wave in New Smyrna Beach. And you would like it was like he got a bike for Christmas or something. He's running out of the, you know, the surf. He's just he's hooked and just in love. And to see it, you know, clicking people like that. That's something I live for, too, is to, to watch that happen. 
Dan Duane, I, I believe. I think I have this right. Um, I actually used to tell this story because I thought it was my own. I actually thought this happened to me for a while, and I was telling it like if I saw it. Turns out I didn't see it. Turns out Dan Duane wrote about it. But the story is <clears throat> he was at Steamers Lane surfing in, you know, in Santa Cruz, and Steamers, is, you, it can get super baby beginner waves sometimes if it's mellow. And guy was surfing with his five-year-old four-year-old son and you know pushed him into a wave on a huge longboard and the kid's dancing around and apparently this dad turns over and looks at dan and goes well he'll never be president <laughs> that's a good comment that's exactly right oh, man i posed the question to the kid too when he came out now excuse me if it's offensive to ladies but i'll try to be and i said now young man you've lost your virginity and you've rode a wave which one's better and the first thing he said was riding a wave and I'm welcome to being oh, a man. Riding away wins. Yeah. <laughs> riding away wins. Yeah. Well, welcome to being a man, sir. Right. And then talk about chasing things the rest of your life is once you kind of experience that flow state, right? I mean, can there be an edge, a, a dark side, if you will, to the flow state to where it can border on kind of a hypervigilant state, right? To where you're chasing this flow state, you know, almost to a point of, you know, danger, et cetera. I'm, I know I'm going way left field here, but. No, no, no. Uh, you're actually uh, totally in line with the research. Um, flow, because to achieve flow, you have to constantly be working things up the challenge skills ratio, meaning flow shows up when the challenge of the task at hand slightly exceeds our skill set, what's known as the challenge skills ratio. And so you're constantly pushing that challenge a little bit, tiny little bit, but over time, it absolutely adds up. Right, you start out surfing small waves. Pretty soon, you're in Mavericks. It, you know, it stacks on top of each other, type of thing. And there's studies that show that risk escalates the longer you stay on the flow path, which is why you see a lot of the kind of top action adventure sport athletes lateralize. They move into different sports because the temptation to keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing is 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 there, right? Uh, you certainly see it with artists, right? Artists have to kind of keep betting it all and pushing on their style and pushing on their style and pushing on their style. Um, you're constantly doing it. And, you know, as a writer, I know that every time I try to push on my style, I, you know, am, it works. I have, a, I have a writing style that really works, but I could really easily snap it. It's, you know, it's a tight balance type of thing. And it's, it, and I push, I keep pushing in different directions because I want to walk up the challenge skills ratio but you know there are times i'll write articles where i'll come back to them and be like yeah that made absolutely no sense whatsoever you tried something didn't really work it's nice to people that they that they read that but i'm really sorry i put that out into the world <laughs> I mean, how do we get people you know to understand that to understand that it's okay to just put those feet forward no matter what comes out to keep pushing past right i mean especially the younger generation they they seem to have this idea now i'm a I'm an optimist for the younger generation, to be honest. I mean, I have a 16-year-old daughter who makes me look like a moron. And so I, I, that for me, I, maybe I base too much optimism on that. But I do. But it seems, though, as if they almost expect mastery, that I, I'm born to do something, so I pick it up and I master it. Or what are the myths about being born to do something, et cetera? It's interesting. I was just at a, a Red Bull and the Santa Fe Institute teamed up for a high-performance conference last week, which was wild and super interesting um and a lot of the world's top experts and performers were there and there was a huge ongoing open debate you know talent versus practice was going on and i don't know where i don't actually i tend to come down 
on the side of there are there's some stuff that is genetic, right? Like Kenyans, their leg muscles work differently than the rest of us. Like there are those kinds of things that you have to deal with. But I come down on the hard work side and more than hard work because I don't think hard work is enough that it won't alone get you there. You need hard work coupled with flow. If you're not, if what you've been working on over and over, for example, rock climbing for me, I climbed for a decade. I don't think I ever was in flow while climbing because I could never, the fear, I could never get it low enough for me to actually get that sweet spot. So eventually, um, when my knees healed enough for me to like be able to, you know, surf and ski again, I rock climbing was my knee healing, you know, thing. Um, I switched, right? So I do think you have to be able to find those things that can produce flow. I think you need that as the propulsion, but if you can do that, I think, you know, I, I think hard work will always triumph. And let me kind of put it more colorfully. When I was writing Rise of Superman, right, we looked at action adventure sport athletes. Now, the three traditional 20th century classic paths towards mastery and excellence are what we, I call mothers, musicians, and marshmallows. Mothers meaning have the right parents, go to the right schools, right? It's environment, right? Musicians, that's Anders Ericsson's great work on concert violinist, 10,000 hours of deliberate structured practice, even though that 10,000 hours is, is not what he said, but that's what Malcolm said, and, right? Um, but, you know, deliberate structured practice or the marshmallow is the famous experiment run by Walter Michelle at Stanford showing that delayed gratification, kids who can delay gratification, you know, as children really succeed as adults and delayed gratification, the ability to not eat a marshmallow when tempted is a better predictor of future success than IQ testing and anything else. So those are the traditional 20th century classic paths towards mastery. They're very Protestant work ethic, as you can see, right? Like have the right parents, go to the right schools, work really, really, really hard in this very structured, not fun way, and never, ever, ever get your cookies, right? You get your cookies next year, but you don't get your cookies. Right? That's, that's like what we got there. And, but if you look at this, this is definitely true with action adventure sport athletes, especially if you look at the kind of first and second generation of action adventure sport athletes who I profiled in Rise of Superman. A lot of them came from broken homes and miserable childhoods. And they had, you know, mothers, I like, forget about it. It wasn't even there. Um, deliberate structured practice, you know, I, you know, remember skiing with Shane McConkey. There was nothing really deliberate or structured about the way he approached the hill. I mean, he skied a ton, right? He was driven by passion and, and vision and creativity and, and all that stuff. And he would set challenges for himself and go with them for sure. But it was not deliberate or structured. And, you know, this is action adventure sport athletes. We're talking about they absolutely would have eaten the marshmallow, right? These guys are instant, instant gratification, not delayed gratification. And yet, they have managed to push human performance faster and farther than any other group in human history, right? So they had none of the traditional mastery. They followed their passion. They had a lot of purpose, meaning like they weren't just action sport athletes. Like they got a lot of their identity from action sports and they felt the need to give back to action sports as a result. And, you know, they're what these, these sports produced a tremendous amount of flow flow is I'm sure you, you know, uh, massively accelerates learning you know studies done by kind of DARPA and our friends at advanced main monitoring and in, in snipers for example found snipers and flow learn like 470 percent faster than normal it's a huge number um 
And by the way, you can Google that if you Google Chris Burka advanced brain monitoring that there's a video of her doing this uh, w- with people. And it's crazy to watch them pick up sniper skills and things like that very quickly. Yeah. I'm going to stop now and let you talk for a while. No, I like what well, I go off, man. I, I'm trying to get you just in that flow state a little bit and push you into that cognitive rampage just a tad. The problem is I live in the middle of nowhere and I don't have many friends. So you put a mic in front of me and I'm going to hog the mic. <laughs> That's the hope, man, because my challenge when I go into this is to shut my mouth, which is something I don't do very well. So when I'm, I'm literally sometimes biting my tongue with some guests and I'm going like, get better at them. Don't say a word. Get better. I did. I go into situations and I'm like, okay, for every one question, I, I have one question I answer. They have to answer two. And it goes out the window like two minutes in. I start biting my tongue. I do the same, and I try to even watch my meals, right? If I go out to dinner and I see how far they're along eating, eating, and I'm like, okay, I need to be at least that far, or I'm not, I'm talking too much because they're they're almost done, and I still got like the full chicken on my plate or something. <laughs> yeah, man, all these kind of tools because you know what, I, we are looked at as that, right? The cognitive rampage, the ADHD guy who's left field, who who's tangential and circumstantial. You know, that's that's kind of where I get to, but. I don't know. What if what if we're just like the middle monkey, right? I mean, we're we're the pendulum's got a swing. We're developing somewhere between what we'll be in a hundred years, like you reference in uh, your newer book, and where we are. I I don't mind being that kind of middle monkey as we're developing to that advanced human state. Middle monkey is not a bad way of putting it. I kind of like that. Um, that makes that makes sense. Um, I just you know. We're a tiny, from an evolutionary perspective, we're a tiny blip. I always say, like, this is as metaphysical as I get. Um, and this is the only crazy mystical belief I hold. But this is, this is, this is it, um, <clears throat> which is all I kind of, every time I've had a so-called spiritual mystical experience, you know, one way or the other, the lesson I come back with is, yeah, the universe is conscious. No, we have no idea where we're going. And all an individual is, is, is the universe's way of asking itself about a question, a question about itself, right? All we are is a strategy or a perspective. Does this work better than that, right? So, and that's, you know, from your middle monkey, we're just, you know, a stretch of particular perspectives, right? A way of the universe asking itself a question about itself, um, that's how I, that's how I tend to think about it. So, you know, is everybody unbelievably special? Yes. You are an absolutely unique perspective. You are going to exist once, but are you special beyond that? Well, I mean, there's an infinite number of other, you know, unique perspectives out there and do the math. <laughs> well, it is the smaller <laughs> Tend to survive, right? So I, uh, I'll keep in that positive perception I've created that somewhere along the line, someone's got to walk a little bit more straight up than the next monkey behind us. So hopefully that's kind of what we're trying to do is try to walk a little bit more upright in, in what we're researching and talk about. Man, I, there's so many places, Stephen, I would love to like go with you and talk to you about and, and pull from here. So I'm, I'm going to kind of keep going with left field. You know, you, you talked in an interview. <laughs> that's where I live, man, left field. Is, uh, you know, you talked that you were the guy that gave all your buddies the ride home back in your teenage years, et cetera. You were, yeah. you were around yeah. the drinkers, the, you know, but you never went into it. I was probably the friend that you were taking home. I'm not. So there's a couple things you need to know about me. Um, in, uh, I am very, a lot of substances 
are, are, don't work very well on me. What I mean by that is if I go have surgery, which I've had a, too much of, um, I have to tell the doctors that morphine doesn't really work on me. I need massive amounts. Otherwise, I wake up in, after surgery with no pain relief. It's sort of the same thing with you know a, a lot of kind of drugs and alcohol. So one of the reasons I just don't like a lot of people have a little bit of whatever and go like just lose themselves completely. I'm so neurotic that I can't lose myself. So I want to stay in control in those situations, um, which, you know, has its upside and downside. But yes, it was my job to kind of talk to the police and try to keep people out of jail often. Yes, that was my job. Well, you that's a protector, right? I, you were kind of an adventurer and a protector almost in the same sense that you looked out for people. I mean, I like to say that poets do that, right? That I think poets poets if used properly have a way to see things in the world that the general public can't see and have a way to bring beauty to them you know to let me show you what you can't see in the beauty of certain things and even in bad things and being that i see a protector i see an adventure and a protector through your your whole life and your parents almost doing that here's each book was an adventure each book was a, a new set out for you that they had given you at a young age all the way up through, man. It's a, it's a it's a fascinating for me to get the epigenetic influence, the stories along the way of the man I got to know through his books and writings, kind of getting to meet you backwards and and bring that together. I'm just flo- I'm just talking, man. I there's no question. No, I mean, I, like you, it was that was. Re- I liked your. I really liked your uh, idea about what a poet is. I thought that was really cool. That's a very nice definition. Well, when I worked in clinical rehabs, right, that's what sent me over the edge is I, I went to school a long time to be a therapist, got in these dual diagnosis drug rehabs. And then I saw a game which I call chemical incarceration, which basically at a two to one percent recovery in rehabs and then just trading drug, drugs for another off the street drugs on our pharmaceuticals. I couldn't take it. It was killing people. And I went live on Rogan and announced it all. And uh, basically have made an aim to try to take them down in that road that, you know, there's other ways that we can help people and change people and, and move through those. And I would always, I don't know why it seemed this way, man, but it always seems like artists wound up in rehab and tons of them, tons of great artists, painters, poets, etc. And, you know, they would write poetry and I realized I couldn't get them in group activity, but sometimes they would write poems and they would write some dark shit. And I used to write dark, dark shit in uh, elementary school and all, which is weird. When you were kicked out of classes, my seventh grade teacher called me her ex. Yo, Tom, yeah, yeah, I was. Me too. I know that feeling. Yeah. And my seventh grade teacher freaked out literally and called me her ex-husband before she stormed out of the room after I read a poem. It was just, it was bad and dark. But what I noticed is I would tell, I'd pull those poets aside and I would say, listen, Everyone can see how dark and shitty life is, and you're just painting it darker for everyone else to see. And I said, your job with that gift, to, that talent to be able to you know, see things is look into the dark and paint the beauty that most people can't see. And then sometimes by the end of their sessions with us, man, they, he would or she would just, it would be some of the most beautiful writing you ever heard when they would aim it in the right direction. You know, it was, it was beautiful. So this is like the Wordsworth versus Ice Cube debate is really what we're having. (laughs) Ice Cube would say you have to represent the darkness and the reality. And that was right. Reality rap was what they were calling it before it became gangster rap. Right. Um, Though the romantics, you know, you're taking a very romantic view of the job of the poet, which is, which is cool. I've got no problem with it. It's interesting that I worked in treatment. I will tell you, um, this is something else that a lot of people don't know about me since we're going to, 
talk about those things. So um, when you have my job and your job is to keep people out of jail, and you were talking about how a lot of people go to rehab, a lot of my friends went to rehab um, and all of them were in AA for a while. And I, um, you know, didn't actually know, you know, did I have a problem? Did I have a problem? It was a ridiculous question because I had done substances or or been drunk maybe under 10 times, but I got dragged into AA. And um, what I discovered there, and I spent three years in AA um, without a a drinking or drug problem, but um, I had no emotional control. I really didn't. And I needed to learn it from somewhere. And I thought it was, it was one of the greatest education I ever got like if I really without the, the from 17 to 20 or whatever the, the window you know what I learned in AA about controlling my emotions and managing my emotions and dealing with like why don't they teach that teach that stuff to grade school kids um because the you know with or without the substance problem the wisdom was awesome yeah for me I'm a fan of whatever works you know if somersaults work do that you know I'm a fan of whatever works but it's the sometimes I would be forced on if it didn't work it's your fault kind of thing but their structure though it was is I mean since 1939 I mean following that structure adds kind of a behavioral aspect to your life kind of a self-admittance to which all of those things can be very strong I'm just kind of advocate of building further and further on the research like your your type of research and many others that show other ways of healing different ways oh, I'm not you're, you're I you know I I have for sure you know if you're looking at you know addiction issues what's going on in psychedelics right now is the most interesting research going on um, though you know what we've seen, it's interesting because we haven't really, there's people who are using action adventure sports to treat addiction, right? There's a, there's a bunch of different treatment facilities. Um, nobody's studied it. But let me give you an example. If you look at post-traumatic stress disorder, switching ailments for a second, uh, the research shows that one to three MDMA therapy sessions is enough for kind of massive decrease in symptoms, sometimes total remission. Well, they redid essentially that experiment with flow surfing instead of psychedelics. The Carly Rogers did this out of UCLA at Camp Pendleton. And they found that five weeks of surfing was about as effective as the MDMA therapy, right? It, it, it produced significant reduction. And it's thera- sur- surfing plus talk therapy. Now, interestingly, they then redid it with meditation. And they found... 12 weeks of meditation doesn't produce the total reduction of symptoms that you can get with the surfing, the others, but significant reduction. So it seems like, you know, you're looking at a gradient of of things. Um, I would, you know, there has been, there, there have been some stuff on meditation and uh, alcoholism, but I don't like, I've not, I don't actually know what the results were. I don't know how, and I haven't seen much on flow and substance abuse other than, you know, anecdotal reports coming out of treatment centers that is pretty damn effective. Um, neurobiologically, it, it makes total sense. Um, but, I, you know, all of those things, I think, are, you know, as interesting as some of the kind of, you know, AA-style therapies in terms of what's going forward. Um, I, you know, I, I just, for emotional control, which is definitely something you need, you know, under any circumstances, um, I just found it particularly useful for that. You 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 hit an aha moment on me. I'm that's all I could do. I was literally chewing my tongue. <laughs> I'm like, uh, so not there's not much study then except these ones coming out there showing great responses for addiction and, and flow, finding that state. There, 
oh my gosh, Stephen, the, the oh man, the book I'm working on now is about athletes and, and many of us, including myself, when these things go away, we go into addiction, we go into, you know, fight sports, we, we go different routes. I became a sure. drug dealer, right? I mean, we, we've chased and pushed those lines, but I mean, wow, I'm only thinking about how many people I know that have beat it by turning to fighting, turning to training, turning to different things that create this constant physical and mental <coughs> And um, well, you got to think, you got to think about it neurobiologically. And what I'm about to say is grossly reductive and possibly a little inaccurate, but it, but it, but it's, it's, it's a working model. So I always used to joke around people. What's the easiest way to go, get over heartbreak, go skydiving. The reason is just neurobiologically romance does a couple of things. One, it dumps copious amounts of, norepinephrine and dopamine into your system and it carves neural nets. All the neural nets go back to the same person you've been in love with. And those are very potent neurochemicals, um, reward chemicals. So pretty much every time you turn around, you see something that reminds you of your beloved and you know, there's reward chemicals, the pathways really groove tightly and you think of them. And so you have to overlay that memory with a more powerful experience with well, skydiving, which will pretty much kick you into a flow state. There are five neurochemicals compared to the two you get for romantic love, right? Um, five reward neurochemicals that show up and it's, you know, it's a fight or flight, you know, life or death response. So it grooves a very fast neural pathway. So suddenly memories start going back to the skydiving experience instead of the girl who left you, right? Addiction. Oh man. Often work. Like, I mean, I could get, people are going to shout at me for this, but, um, with addiction, you're often like you're looking at sort of the same thing. You need to overlay, you know, those memories and you need to do it with experiences that are more powerful than the drug craving. Well, Christ, man, if you're a coke addict and you're massive amounts of dopamine, right? Huge reward drugs, super addictive. You're going to the only thing that's going to get you close um, is either you know, essentially drugs that cocktail more neurochemical that right, then you're just swapping out drugs, you're going from, you know, coke to some PCP, coke speed, bled, which, you know, nightmare, right, black ice, I think that was called. Um, but, uh, or you're going skydiving, or you're falling in love, or, you know, you're, de- you know, in AA, people develop spiritual practices of various kinds, you know, those are big, powerful overlays of neurochemistry, that sort of thing that can start to overlay these things with time. If people don't like to talk about human beings as like on a certain level, the brain humans, we just get addicted to things. That's what we do. That's how we live. That's we have this polite word. We call it habits or habit loops. And I got to break that. You are addicted to shit, right? The question is, are you addicted to good shit or bad shit? Chick set me high. In, in good business, I love this quote. He says, unlike other addictions, he's talking about flow. He said, unlike other addictions like gambling or drugs, flow is an addiction that leads forward into the future because it constantly requires challenges and skills and pushing on your stress and stretching yourself and moving forward. It doesn't lead backwards, right? But they're all addictions. And we don't like, we really don't like to talk about that. So we, one of the discussions we don't get to have out loud, which you hit on earlier, the risk stuff, is addiction management. We deal with action sport athletes or kind of special operators. And when they get out of the service or, you know, they start having families and they no longer want to huck off 50 foot cliffs, people have real problems, 
right? So how do you come down from one? You know, a lot of people go into combat sports, as you pointed out. A lot of people, you know, a lot of the special operators go into action sports. What people don't realize, by the way, is that same dopamine hit that you get from cocaine that you get from action sports when taking rests, um, combat and whatever shows up with creativity. When you link ideas together, you said you had that aha moment, that rush of pleasure you felt that's dopamine, right? You stack three or four of those in a row. You've got as much dopamine as you just got from risk, right? Or look at it this way. Research out of Stanford done by Robert Sapolsky shows that novel unpredictable rewards. When you put yourself in a novel, unpredictable situation, dopamine spike level spike 800%. It's bigger than anything else you can essentially get. There are lots of ways. If you under, if you want to just talk about it at a, at a kind of gross neurobiological level. And again, like I'm, I'm sort of reducing it like to this point of neurochemistry and not going any before, like it's a really gross, inaccurate measure. But if you just talk about it that way, um, and talk about these things as addiction management because that's what you're looking at. It starts to make a whole lot more sense, and you start being able to, you know, sort of solve problems. You, well, you get a away lot from more. symptoms. Everything set up is meant to deal and manage symptoms, and just band aid over top of symptoms. You know, even drug addictions. Hell, in my, my book, I talk about self sabotage being an addiction. I mean, even depression, anxiety, these can be states that we get used to being that define us, that tell our narrative even better for us, and. I mean, all of those self I mean, I love getting back down to calling it what it is. I mean, um, um, Gabor, um, I can't ever pronounce Mate. Yeah, Mate. He even talks about with trauma, you know, linking it to trauma. Well, I could argue that we all experience trauma in our own route, in our own way. And therefore, maybe it leads to addiction across all boards. But I, I really prefer the risk management idea. I mean, Dr. Andrew Hill out in L.A., they're, they're doing things about uh, alternative drug treatment, teaching people how to use safely. I mean, for me, that's a better start. I, I, I argue that we tried to teach abstinence sex in school and look how good that worked out. Well, I mean, if you look at, I mean, look at the stats on Just Say No, Nancy Reagan's Just Say No. It was the biggest disaster. And by the way, it drove tons of people into drugs, including me, because Nancy Reagan said, Just Say No. And she said, Marijuana is a gateway drug. And when I was 13 years old or whatever and smoked pot for the first time and didn't end up a heroin addict, I went, well, she's full of shit. Okay. I mean, right. What are you talking about here? And I was one of millions of people who had that experience. And we were like, okay, <clears throat> this is, you know, they obviously don't know what they're talking about. And, you know, that stood in the way of really effective, you know, management for a really long time. I, I agree with you. Um, Oh, man, I like it when you go off. Man. <laughs> it's true. I mean, it, you could take the drug wars almost linking most of the issues we're having today with police and all the other things and issues. I mean, it stems deep. But that lie, though, right, the the withholding of the truth. And I think, you know what, maybe the confidence to circle back, man, is understanding and getting competent in something, knowing the research, having the experience yourself going out there, you know, whatever that may be. You know, I, I don't know. I think maybe truth and sharing that maybe some of the answers to get by it. You know, it was interesting. I was uh, uh, I was at this conference and I listened to a, a friend of mine, Brian Ferguson, who was in the Navy SEALs for seven years and got out. And he was talking about kind of qualities that all of uh, the special operators seem to share. And one of the things he was talking about was, um, A, how open to feedback they want. Like, you know, you, you go on a mission. Immediately, the first thing you do afterwards is you debrief it. You have brutally honest feedback, right? 
I uh, writing workshops are filled with that kind of stuff, right? So, edit, you know, editors, you know, occasionally somebody will say, "Hey, that was a great piece," but mostly you hear, "Oh my god, if you don't change, it's gonna, I've got to lose my guy," you know, that. And uh, and what they really mean is, can you swap paragraph four and seven and change the sentence here and the sentence there? But like, that's really usually what it kind of comes down to. Uh, it's brutal and. There's something in that. And he talks about one of the things that he noticed is the difference. Everybody fails, right? But what he found is that people at the top limits of human performance get so pissed off when they do something wrong that they will go extraordinarily far out of their way, right? Public shaming is really, you know, is a big motivator. And I like, I, I think of that as well. Like, yes, I fail. And, um, I fail all the time. And it's not that I, you know, particularly I don't mind failing. I fucking can't stand to fail. It makes me crazy. I go nuts, but I will go exceptionally far out of my way, you know, not to screw up again in that same way. As my friend Michael likes to say, I want to make different mistakes. Yeah. I mean, the, well, that I love that because there's so much personal development bullshit that's about love to fail, embrace the fail. No. Don't fail. Fail. I like Elon Musk's approach. No, failure's bad. It, we can learn from it, but it means I didn't do it right. So you go back and want to push it further and push that failure further. So I, I like philosophers out there that start saying, you know, fail forward is like fail, but be upset that you failed and try to 10 exit after. You can, I mean, it, you absolutely want in your own personal life, you know, it's rapid experimentation, right? Like, like that. absolute rapid experimentation. You have to like, does this work? Does this work? Does this work? Does this work? Right. I, you know, uh, you revert to your training and what that, what that essentially means is when you get scared, when you're up against it, right. You're going to drop back down to the level that you have automatized that makes you feel the safest. And usually that means, you know, if, for example, for me, uh, airports can really make me crazy. I really can absolutely like, I'm a super nice mellow dude, unless my flight has been late for like 17 hours and I haven't slept and they cancel it again and the gates wrong and blow up. And then I just go crazy. And in that moment, I will revert to like being a 17 year old, angry punk rocker. Like that's how I know how to be safe. It's the worst thing possible. That's the level of like my training when it comes to really like, when a lot of kind of fear-based, aggressive, annoying situation, like that's where I go back to. It's not a good idea, but right back there. Um, I think confidence is knowing that your level of training is kind of not the 17-year-old punk rocker, but somewhere, you know, later on on the developmental scale, maybe. Like, but I don't know. Yeah, well, for me, I know why the flight bothers you, man. It bothers you so much because it's, not one, you don't have control, and two, it's stopping you moving forward. I mean, you're the yeah, grandfather. Dude, I got places to go. That's <laughs> what I'm saying. You can't, you can't 17 hour delay the grandfather of flow who's got to move. That's why you're. That's, yeah. that's no, what? I'm a shark. I, I'm a, if I if I stop moving, I die. Ah, I like that one, man. All the deep scientific shit we could go into, and I'm a shark. If I stop moving, I die. Oh man, I could. I know you got some things you got to take care of, man. You've given me a little more time than uh, than you could, so I I want to kind of wrap something up, man. But I mean, 
I had too many questions. You, there's something you talk a lot about that is you do six things, right? You cover the five that make flow and one that doesn't. Why six? How'd you pick the six? What are they? Um, <clears throat> I don't know how I pick six, which is to say I could have read it somewhere or I just arrived at it. Uh, the, the one bit of backstory leading into what it was, it, all this sort of emerged out of a realization Two realizations. One, life is short. I spent three years in bed with Lyme disease. I want to do very little that doesn't produce flow, right? Just after that, um, that I realized. The other thing I realized is that at a certain point, and this was, I was in my 40s when I figured this out. I look back at my life. This is one of those things I meant by trusting your history. And I realized that the only things I'd ever failed at were the things I stopped trying at, right? I had never, ever, ever failed at anything I persisted at. My first nonprofit uh, was called the Reporters Gym. It was with the LA Lakers and Dave Eggers, and we taught inner city kids how to be sports writers. It took me seven or nine years of like a phone call a week or two phone calls a week or an email or a letter or a prospectus to like get it off the ground. I only ran it for two years, by the way, but it took me, you know, seven years for a, a, a two year run. And we, we definitely helped some, helped some, um, some kids for sure. And it was awesome. But I, I looked at stuff like that and I was like, okay, so if I only, if I reduce the stuff that I want to do to like core things and I just never give up on them, I won't fail. That was my thinking. And so uh, the six things are um, writing, obviously words, uh, animals, uh, you know, I run an animal sanctuary and I, you know, I work on these issues, uh, flow one way or the other advanced flow science working with the flow genome project. Take your, take your pick. Uh, I huck the meat carcass down mountains, right? Action sports, uh, friends and family. Uh, I'm, I, I like, a, I like a little slow social flow and you gotta like, if you don't prioritize those things, they go away. And right. Those are, those are bad. Those are bad th- outcomes. And you know, the last one is the support structures, everything, you know, from talking to you through, you know, there's a lot of kind of marketing and PR and all that stuff involved in, you know, all the other things I do. That's just part of it. I have to design new courses for the flow genome, you know, that sort of stuff. That's support stuff. Yeah. Yeah, man. I, I can see why you, you start adding big wave surfing, everything else to that. I mean, yeah, I see where you have to stay with the five man. And, and, and I, you know, for, with the action sports, you probably know this, right? Like it's one thing when you're getting to perform kind of every day, but when you work a job, you know, I, I'll get up at four o'clock in the morning and work till five, six o'clock every night. And, you know, yes, I'm taking time off to get exercise during that. But like, that's my work schedule. And I get two, three days a week on the hill. Um, and I, you know, you got, if you're not going to blow yourself up and break everything, which, you know, I have a long history of doing. Um, Was it 80? You need to, you know, you really, uh, some 75 to 82, somewhere in there. Yeah. Um, I just bruised a rib two weeks ago. Um, and I was wondering this morning, cause it's not healing. So professor, I was like, really, did I break another one? Man. So maybe it's 83. Yeah, all right. Yeah. I think I interrupted you with the bones there. Oh right? no. All, I mean, all I was saying is, is also that like, if you're really going to, you know, be an action sport athlete at a high level, like the support that needs during the week in terms of like the workout, I, you know, I, I'm working out at an hour and a half. My, easy day is 40 minutes, you know, it's a 40 minute uphill hike kind of thing. And, you know, 
the long days are like three hours kind of stuff, just so you can have two days of, you know, whatever that's worth a damn on the hill. Right. Cause if I don't get that flow state when I'm skiing or mount, like I can't reset for the week and then I'm just screwed. Well, I, that's this three day journey I took, man. I, I had to prep for this one, man. I've been, like I said, I, I've been waiting for this for months to talk at you. I, I just paddle out for three days and take uh, a backpack and my fishing pole and uh, pretty much uh, some water and just paddle down either the river or I'll cross over a Marco Island and disappear in the 10,000 islands for a while and uh, fish my way alive and roll myself back and like the training, man, even if you just try to surf for two days in a row over at New Smyrna Beach or just somewhere light. I mean, after two days of doing that, I mean, the training that has to go in place of that, I I guess this is where I'm supposed to. Yeah. Recovery, right? I was just listening to a Kobe Bryant interview and he said, you know, as you get older, it's not that the, you know, very few metrics go down as you get older. Yes, speed goes down around 2021. 20, it just starts declining a little bit. So you lose a little bit of power as a result of that. But other than that, everything else you know, stays roughly the same into your seventies. You can, you know, you can add, be adding muscle strength and all that stuff. I was just talking to a guy last week who was doing VO max testing on lifetime endurance sport athletes who were in their eighties and nineties. He's got a 92 year old guy with a VO max of 40, which is essentially what a 20 year old college student has wow. active, not super athlete, but an active 20 year old college. So a lot of these things persist. Right. What doesn't persist is recovery and recovery is what, right. You really have to, you know, it's important for flow. It's important for, you know, sports, active recovery as you get older is what I've discovered. I really like have to put a lot of time into. You know, go, can you go a tad farther with the recovery from flow? Cause I, I find myself in and out of flow many times, like on different levels from a micro to a macro level. It depends on what I'm working on or how far or, you know, wherever I'm at. Right. I mean, so when you talk about flow recovery, what does that, what's that entail or active or not? Well, it's an expensive state for the brain to produce those neurochemicals take some energy, you know, and you, you burn through them and it takes some energy to, for them to replenish and things along those lines. So, you know, a, on the back end of a flow state, there's flows a big high. It's followed by a deep low. Right? There's no more feel-good neurochemistry. <coughs> Prefrontal cortex has come back online. The inner critic is vicious. And, you know, it's a, it's a ruthless state. I, you know, as a creative, by the way, I find it's awesome because I, if you write in flow, every idea is great. I want to edit at this deep low because anything that I like, I know is good because I don't like anything that, right? Like, it's, it's perfect for that. But... Other than that kind of thing, if it's, if it's brought on by sports or whatever, you, you really have to calm, calm down on the back. And in fact, at this point a lot, I really believe that one of the reasons action adventure sport athletes got so far so fast and were able to really utilize flow to drive performance is the sports are weather dependent. Big swell comes in. Everybody surfs for three days, goes away. Nobody surfs for another week, right? Big storm blows in. Everybody goes and skis like mad for three days takes a couple of days before the next storm cycle or a week or whatever. So there's built in recovery times. And certainly one thing that I've discovered is that when you really physically challenge yourself, when it's actual risk out there where you feel like, Oh my God, if I screw up, I could put myself in the hospital. That has a way of really resetting your nervous system. So everything else doesn't seem as, you know, big afterwards. And I'm more likely to recover also. So like when you go out and risk your life in an action adventure sport the day after, you're kind of like, okay, I'm satisfied. I almost died three or four times yesterday. I can take a day off and recover. I think that's ubiquitous across action adventure sports. And 
it, the two things combine to really people take time off. They get into saunas and they do a lot of yoga, you know, all those things. I find that if I'm not stretching it every day and doing some kind of either hot or cold therapy every day, getting in saunas, hot Epsom salt baths or, you know, ice baths or what, um, I, it doesn't work. I can't compete at the level I want to compete. Now I'm 49 years old. So, you know, that's one thing, but old my ass, man. Well, I, dude, I, I'll tell you a true story. And then I got, then I got, then I got to jump. I got the chance to spend, uh, April in Squaw Valley this past April in Squaw Valley. And there was a day, a friend of mine, a ski photographer had a birthday party and we had a picnic on the hill and then we all went skiing and there were five generations of pro skiers in this posse going from like 18 year old, just current pros to Tom day who was Scott Schmidt's original steam skis partner. So literally like the history of skiing was super yeah, well represented. Take pictures or film. This has been beautiful. There are, so there are a couple pictures of having lunch, but they're, 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 they're lousy. Um, and there were, there was also a girl there who had barely snowboarded before in her life. Like it was awesome. Um, there was, a, there were newbies too, but we were, cha- everybody was chasing Tom day. The oldest guy, in the posse was leading the posse and we weren't catching him. You know what I mean? So like, you know, what, if you, if you do it right, you can, you know, it, what, what I'm seeing firsthand is that you can perform at this level into your 60s, 70s, you know, Laird Hamilton has a train partner who was the guy who invented Bally's. I think he's in his eighties and uh, you know, he's an animal. So that stuff's exciting, but active recovery is, yeah. is the point we're making. Well, I like the ending point there, though. The one there's tons of listeners, man, that are going to hear that to say I'm too old. I've hit the forty. I've hit the sixty. Right? All these reasons, oh. man. I mean, that's motivating. Okay. So, final story, and then I'm done. So, I ski with a man. Dave Stanton is his name. Uh, Dave uh, was a, is a kick-ass creative director, a creative director of BBDO for a while. Ad guy, um, really talented athlete, but never a pro. Um, and pretty much every ski season, on the last day of ski season. Um, unless one of us is injured, he ends the year by whatever was the biggest thing I did all year, the gnarliest thing I did all year. He will casually work our way over to it and go bigger than I did, just so I have something to think about all summer long. He's 64. Woo! Yeah. I love him. He's 60. Yeah. So he's literally 20 some years older than me, and, you know, or 15 years older than me in, in his 60s. And kicks my ass intentionally at the end of every ski season just so I have to think about it. So what I like is that it just shows me what's possible. And that when I get to be his age, I can torture people who are younger than me. So I have something to look forward to. <laughs> you already do it, man. I've only written one or two books working on You're already killing me. So I'm already, I'm, I probably will be chasing you most of the time down the hill, not getting close. So uh, I, I appreciate you being that, uh, Mr. Dave, for me. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad it could be useful. <laughs> <laughs> You're beyond useful, man. I guess this is where I'm supposed to nonchalantly be all cool and curb something to some cool ending. But frankly, man, just just talking to to Steven, not so much the author and everything else, but just you as a person, man, and, and opening up your your history, where you came from, some stories like that. Um, you're fucking cooler in public, man. <laughs> I, I like you in person like this, man. I, I appreciate you being that real. Sure. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for the great questions. Oh, it was ah, my pleasure, man. I, I could go on, man, and enjoy it. Thank you. Uh, I don't know. Nothing cool to exit on, my friend. I think we hit enough ramping. <laughs> you know? Not even like you can't leave with like a big poetic quote. 
Uh, maybe I song. just freestyle with the flow man himself. Sit here for a second and see if I can go into this. Uh, sit and pause and, man, just go for this, right? Like big wave ride when you just paddle into this. Just jump into words and poetry and see if I can find the verbs for this. This is what I do. This is how I live. Writing and flow, living and flow, and talking and flow. Nothing written down. Just hit start and broadcast and let's go. This is how I do it. Been on three days out in nature, paddling alone, and still I come back Monday, and at the end of this show, Stephen Collar put me in flow. <laughs> that was awesome. That was a good ending. I don't think we could cut. <laughs> All right, man. Take care, Stephen. Be good. Thank you. Love you, bro. Holy shit, that just happened.